I know that I rebuilt myself from the bottom up and you know exercise was a huge part of that rebuilding. I literally could not have been at a lower ebb. The only downside to the musical theatre world, you need to be thin, you need to look a certain way and my body wasn't quite right for that industry as it was. So I started this Instagram, like you said, Clean Eating Alice. There's this amazing community of people that were interested in all of these kind of aspects of health, nutrition, fitness. I was only 16 when I was in the relationship that I was in that was incredibly physically and emotionally abusive. We forget that those first relationships are so pivotal in what we learn to be right and wrong in a relationship. So and so part of my work with them now is really teaching you know, what constitutes a healthy relationship. Yeah, there were definitely things that I was doing that were problematic. I've had to unlearn a hell of a lot of stuff that I once thought to be the thing to do, if I'm totally honest. I... Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money. All in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or your computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating a podcast today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify, and when you want to take conversations with your fans to the next level, Q&A and polls are the best way to get them talking. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I love engaging with my audience with the Q&A and the polls. And I also love the fact that I can upload my video podcast onto Spotify because I know my audience love watching it sometimes when they're traveling on their commute. I highly recommend you give it a try and you can download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com forward slash podcasters to get started. So let's start from the beginning. Tell us a little bit of an intro. Tell us who you are, what you do. <laughs> so I find it sometimes difficult to describe exactly what I do because now there are lots of strings to my bow. But to take you right back, um, I had a very, quote unquote, normal upbringing. Um, <laughs> I grew up in, a, in Buckinghamshire in the home counties, uh, went to school, did pretty well in my uh, GCSEs and A-levels and then decided age sort of 17 that I wasn't right for university or more that university was not right for me and that actually my passion was musical theatre and I wanted to be on the West End stage. So that was the dream and I think that I, when I look back I'm like I'm really proud of myself for doing that because I went to a really academic school where all my friends went off to like, you know, really good universities and I really bucked the trend by being like no I'm going to take a year out and I'm going to go to theatre school of all things so <laughs> it was a good moment and I'm so grateful that I had parents who supported me in that decision but yeah the dream was to be in the West End so I took a year out I worked uh, really hard and I earned enough money to be able to go on audition for theatre schools and uh, thankfully got into a place called Bird College, which is a really renowned theatre school in the south of London. Okay. Um, and went off there 
did three years of musical theatre training, which was the hardest but best three years of my life. And when I think about my journey and my trajectory to where I am now, I really reference those years as being so pivotal in creating a foundation of discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that anyone that's trained in dance or musical theatre knows that my university experience was so vastly different from my friends in the sense that I was in every single day, 8 a.m. to 6, 7, 8, 9 p.m., if we had rehearsals, um, it was strict. It was um, brutal at times. It was um, incredibly kind of like soul destroying at moments. But then like also I made the best friends of my life there. And I genuinely look back on those years so fondly because it was me really finding my people and my mm. place where I just felt, oh God, this is this is really what I want to do. Um, so to then cut it fairly short I then uh, graduated early because I was the first person yay in my no year way. to get um, a job and I went into a um, number one UK tour um, toured the UK with Annie the musical um, which Hold was amazing on. what yeah <laughs> who were you and Annie I was in the ensemble so I was a dancer so everyone's oh like were you Annie and I was like no no we actually had kids um, <laughs> oh that were incredible gosh. but yes yeah, so I was in the ensemble and I, I was first cover for Grace Farrell which is like the lead female part um, which was, you know, for, for my first job out of college, amazing. Amazing. Um, again, probably one of the best years of my life. Backbreakingly hard. Yeah. We were in a different city every week. I lived out of a suitcase for a year. I had pretty much no days off because we were constantly rehearsing. Mm. Um, it was exhausting. And at that time, I was just starting to build my social platform. So I started this uh, Instagram page called Clean Eating Alice while I was at university. Um, And it kind of just started to grow, really. So while I was on tour, the unthinkable happened, which was an email came into my inbox that said, we'd love to offer you a book deal. Um, So out of nowhere, I suddenly was kind of catapulted into uh, a two book deal with HarperCollins, which was um, unbelievable. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I know. I feel like I've gone all over the place there. Okay. (laughs) So you were on tour with Annie. Mm. Okay. And then you started an Instagram account called Clean Eating Alice. Mm. What was that Instagram account about? So, I mean, looking back now, when I explained my kind of college experience, as much as it was like wholly positive and incredible, the um, probably only downside to the musical theatre world, and I'd like to think that it's slightly different now, but back then it was very much about you need to be thin Mm -hmm. and um, you need to look a certain way. And it was was an environment where I was surrounded with people who kind of had legs up to here, who were, you know, unbelievably lean, talented, beautiful. And rightly or wrongly, I just felt that my body wasn't quite right for that industry as it was. Um, So at the end of my first year, my jazz teacher, who was kind of my head of year, pulled me aside for our kind of annual um, like review that we had. And she was like, you know, Alice, you just really need to get stronger. You're lacking strength, you know, across the board. I didn't get amazing results. Um, in fact, I fell flat on my bum in my jazz assessment. So it just wasn't Aww. a good first year. <laughs> so she just said, you need to get stronger. And um, that word really stuck with me. And I remember leaving that room and being like, right. You know, I only have one option here and that is to, you know, really change and make change for the better. And it was at a time when people like Joe Wicks and Kayla Itzines and those kind of really early adopters of Instagram were just starting out. And um, 
I just looked at them and thought, yeah, I can do that too. So I started this Instagram, like you said, Clean Eating Alice. Uh, it started actually as a completely anonymous page. So it was like a closed private page. And all I did was just take pictures of every meal I was eating. I mean, it was the most basic of basic. But um, I recognized quite early on that there was this incredible, and this was early Instagram, the nice yeah. days, when um, <laughs> there was this amazing community of people that were interested in, you know, all of these kind of aspects of health, nutrition, uh, fitness. And I was like, if I make my page open, I can kind of interact with these people. And it's like, you know, I remember the time I was living with um, an amazing group of people, but none of them were really into their fitness or, or nutrition as I was sort of getting into. So I was like, you know, this is an opportunity for me to interact with people who have similar mm. interests to me. So I opened up the page, started to grow a following. I still remember to this day reaching 10,000 followers and taking a picture on my balcony like, woo! So cute. <laughs> um, but yeah, it kind of just grew from there. So then when I graduated and went into the show, the following had started to grow quite exponentially. And um, yeah, that's when the when the book deal came in. And what was the book deal for? Was it for recipes? Was it for... Yeah, so it was a combination of fitness and recipes. So my okay. first book um, was predominantly recipes with some fitness. Um, my second book was very similar, predominantly recipes. And then my third book, which I went on to then sign for, was predominantly fitness with some recipes. So we kind of cool. did a mixture of the two, all with HarperCollins. Um and, you know, it's it's really interesting as a kind of period of my life. At the time, it felt incredible. And I was like, oh, my God, like I never imagined in my wildest dreams that I'd be a published author age 23 or 22, I think it was. Nice. And, um, you know, be doing what, I'm, what I, I was then doing. Um, but looking back and hindsight's a wonderful thing, right? Um, I'm like, I was offered a six figure sum for a book deal aged. Huh? 22 what and had no qualifications no experience um they didn't really check out i think if i had any kind of um you know kind of grounding in in you know what i was doing so i think that i'm gr so grateful for that experience and everyone that supported me but i also have an immense sense of i guess guilt for, for want of a better word around um, the messaging and the place that I was in and there not really being much safeguarding around questions about how healthy what I was doing really was if that makes sense interesting we'll, we'll come on to the guilt bit in a minute sure. six figure sum for a book sorry what I'm in shock by that I have to just add to that that um, it was a crazy time yeah you know like Delicious Yella had just exploded onto the scene. Okay. She was selling hundreds of thousands of books. Joe okay. Wick's the same. And I think I was basically seen as the next big thing. Got it. Uh, I also think that it was a time in publishing where people were really buying these books. You know, yeah. we it, it's definitely changed now. And I'm actually currently writing my fourth book. And I have to be totally honest and say, the money's not quite, quite as so Everyone much. Everyone says that about a book. It's like yeah. the money isn't really there. You're not writing a book to make money. No, um, no, It's exactly. really just around credibility and sharing your passion. For sure. I've been asked to write a book. <gasps> That's incredible. Like for the last year. Well done. We are now in July. I, I can't figure it out. I think Should it come to you? This is what everyone is saying. It will come to you. Like, you'll know. And I'm like, maybe it's not the right time. I think that's a really good point. I think that writing a book for the sake of writing a book isn't yeah. the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, 
I think that the book that I'm currently writing is the book that I've had in my locker for the last sort of probably five years. I'm like, I know that I want to get this down on the page. Yes. And it just so happened that an incredible editor, not a publishing house, not money, nothing like that. We were connected. Uh, My editor, Amy, she's amazing. And she is the same age as me. She followed me from day dot. And we had this really honest conversation about what we thought would be the right Mm. thing to do in this situation. And actually it kind of, you know, talking about this, it it, it will hint as to what the book might be about. But um, it was more our connection and our understanding of this feels really right. And I know that, you know, your editor and your relationship with your editor is really important when it comes to a book. Okay. Um, And so she was definitely the right person that I knew could help me do what I really or help me do justice to what I really wanted to write yeah um so it was more her and actually the money was almost like not to say that money isn't important of course in every situation it's important but Mm -hmm. it was never the driving factor for me it was always about I have a story to tell I want to get this down the page I met someone who I knew could align with my values on that Mm -hmm. and then you know contracts are contracts you kind of Of move on to that next step but but that was never the driving factor I get that. So I want to talk around your what you just said around guilt. Do you think that some of the stuff you were saying in the book wasn't right then? 100%. Okay. 100%. I think I I see it in two parts. The first part is I I take a huge amount of responsibility in what I do. And I think it's incredibly important to own our mistakes. Yeah. In anything in life, it's really important to own our mistakes. And I think that I was projecting a narrative that wasn't 100% true. And that's the complete honesty, you know? I was like, everything's great, I'm the picture of health, yada, yada, yada. Um, That wasn't my reality, okay? But then I have to put my compassionate hat on and say, I was a product of an environment in which all of those behaviors were entirely normalized. So for the most part, I felt that what I was doing was the right way to do things. It was like, you know, incredibly normalized and to eat courgette spaghetti instead of spaghetti and to uh, count your calories every single day and to, you know, have no days off from the gym. All of those behaviors were very normalized. So I didn't know any different. And so I see it in two halves. And, you know, I've had to work really hard on the kind of guilt aspect of this because, I know that I don't have to take 100% blame for that because of the context of the environment, but I yet I still do because it's really important to own my mistakes, if that makes sense. So, yeah, there were definitely things that I was doing that were problematic. I've had to unlearn a hell of a lot of stuff that I once thought to be the thing to do. Um, I've had healthy, which you presumed to be healthy at the time. Exactly. And I've had to you know, really publicly climb down from this pedestal that people had put me on. And that is really hard to do. So hard. You know, and I think when you have an audience of people that are like, oh, but you said this, do you not think that now? Um, That's difficult. And, you know, I take full responsibility for that. And I'm, I'm actually really grateful for most of my audience, I'd say 99% sticking with me for that journey. And I think it's because I recognised really early on that I had to be fully transparent about, you know, everything and to really take them on that journey of I've made mistakes and I need to explain to you why I've made them and kind of be so open and transparent about that journey that it felt authentic for them to then transition with me. Um, but yeah, it was it was difficult at the time for sure. And, and it's still something that I, you know, I... I am 
challenged by, you know? Well, I think when you start so early on and you're in the public eye, it's very, very hard. You know, there's so many things that you might say or think at the time and then you grow, evolve and change. I think that's very normal. But mm. as a public person who's watching from the outset, it might feel like, oh, you've jumped and changed with the trends or the styles. Mm. And people don't really leave you much room to grow. And they don't realize that they're watching you grow and also grow up. Mm. Does that make sense? Compl Let's just go back to what you said. So you were you wrote this book. What happened after that? Did you continue in theatre? Or were you just focusing mainly on Instagram and fitness now? Yeah, so um, I left theatre after I finished my year contract. So I did that first year on tour and I'd signed a two book deal with HarperCollins. So I always wow. knew there was a second book coming. And I said to myself, you know what? I'll just take a bit of a breather from theatre because anyone that's done it knows how hard it is. Mm. Uh, I'll write my second book and then I'll always go back. So it was always on the agenda to go back in. But it just so happened that in taking that break, I was like, well, I don't just want to sit and write the book. I want to do something. I'd got my personal training qualification whilst I was on tour and um, so I was like, I'll get a job in a gym. And I'm very grateful to Johnny Lomax, who um, used to run Lomax, sadly now closed, but Lomax Gym in, um, in London, gave me my first job. Started off there as a personal trainer, grew my client base, had the most incredible clients. I mean, some of my clients are now still my really close friends. One of them is my bridesmaid at my wedding next year. You know, like that's no how lovely way. they were and how pivotal like that point was for me because um, it gave me a real purpose outside of, you know, before then theatre was the only thing that I could see myself doing. And actually, you know, being a personal trainer, I never thought I'd love it as much as I did. And that year was really helpful for me in sort of being like, Ah, oh, this is really great and I'm really I really enjoy helping people. Yeah. That that year taught me how fulfilling it is to help people. Um and that that's part of my personality complex now. I know that I I need to feel needed and I need to feel as though I'm making a difference even mm -hmm. if it's just a one person. Like I need to feel that. So, um yeah, that was really crucial. So, from then on I've worked in the fitness industry. Um never went back to theater sadly. Uh obviously still miss it, but now kind of live vicariously through my through my <laughs> friends who are still in it. Um but yeah, I just kind of pivoted and decided to go all in on the Instagram on personal training, uh, I then moved to a, to a really well-known um, London gym called Third Space. Oh my gosh, um, so nice. Trained amazing clients. You know, I worked with Jodie Comer. I trained Saran Jones. And like some of my clients from there really taught me so much. Mm -hmm. And also it was an environment which I, in which I was surrounded by incredible coaches. I mean, anyone that knows Third Space knows their PTs and you're like, yeah, they are the top of their game. So I met my mentor there who I still work with to this day and was surrounded by an environment of people that really taught me like what it meant to be a, a really good personal trainer. And so did that. And then things have just kind of escalated from there, really. Amazing. I mean, when you look now on Instagram, there's just so many people within every field. Every field is saturated. I mm. honestly feel that every single person on my Instagram has their own podcast. <laughs> Genuinely, I'm just like, there's literally millions and millions of podcasts, personal trainers, you know, uh, re recipe creators, food accounts. Back then, it wasn't so saturated, though, right? So... What kind of made you push through? Because I kind of see it now. Like right now you'll look at someone and think, okay, I'm good at that. I know I can make an, a career out of Instagram. But back then, what was your thinking on it? Honest answer. Um, in the early days, I really enjoyed the, the sense of validation that it gave me, if I'm totally honest. 
I grew up and I was never like the number one, you know, I wasn't the most popular or I never had like, you know, that kind of um, moment in my life where I felt really validated. Mm. Um, So to suddenly have all these people following me and telling me that I was, you know, inspiring and whatever, that really massaged my ego. And that was definitely ego talking when it when it came to kind of growing it. But that never sustains you. And I think what kept me was a sense of responsibility, um, thriving in the sense of community that I'd built, and most importantly, helping other people. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that first year of personal training taught me what it meant to genuinely help people and to be empathetic to what it takes to help someone with their relationship with food and with exercise. Um, when you're working hands-on with clients who are coming into you with all sorts of life experiences and kind of context and you're needing to get them from A to B, it really teaches you the skill set of how to genuinely understand what it means to train someone hands-on. And I guess if I were to say one of my frustrations with the fitness industry, a lot of the... Um, fitness influencers that we have now have never worked one-to-one with clients you know on a gym floor Darren said that when he came on my podcast yeah and I think you know that's not me poo-pooing other trainers because everyone has to get you know somewhere and I understand that some people uh, don't see the benefit I guess of being on the gym floor but my god it, it taught me so much and I refer back to that time so much in terms of what I learned and why it's now shaped the trainer that I am today yeah. and I do think it's less about the skills that I acquired and more about the people skills that I learned mm. that the um the kind of communication skills and the um understanding of when someone comes in what you're what they're usually presenting with and that can be wildly varied but I just learned so much more and I think when you're just pushing out content and kind of assuming that you understand what people want and just pushing out you know very generic workouts like I think the crucial kind of secret source that people are missing is you need to speak to individuals about what they truly want when it comes to exercise it doesn't just need to be you know here's a few exercises off you go it needs to be I need to solve a problem here what are people not getting when it Mm. comes to when they go into the gym how are they feeling what do they need what are they missing what are people not understanding when it comes to what makes up a good program you know that's way more important than just you know anyone can push out generic exercises so I think tone of voice empathy understanding communication actually hold far more value for me as a trainer than actually the skills of just putting together a workout is that where you kind of had your transition of thinking around, okay, well, what I'm doing isn't healthy and this is what is healthy? When was that transition that you mentioned earlier around in book one, you wouldn't necessarily support some of the things you're saying mm. to then to book three or now to book four where you know exactly where you stand? Yeah, I think it was a real gradual thing. Um, I think that, you know, I, I've spoken a lot about this kind of like catalyst Um but I think it's really important for me to to talk about it because there was one moment where, you know, the light bulb really came on for me in a sense that I was like, oh, God, like I'm I'm not doing things the way I should be right now. Um, so I um, lost my period because I put my body under too much stress. We know that to be the case with a lot of women when they exercise too much don't eat enough food, don't have enough of an energy intake. And um, therefore their body kind of goes, well, what's the easiest thing that I can shut down because I'm not coping right now. There's too much stress on me. I'm going to stop your periods from happening. So um, mine were lost uh, for quite a long period of time. And I was quite oblivious to the fact that that was a really bad thing. Yeah. Um, 
And it was only when I went to go and see this amazing woman, and I credit her like in my book as being so crucial in my kind of journey of then unlearning all of that stuff. She's called Emma Cannon. She's an acupuncturist. I actually think she's a bit of a witch. Like she's in a good way, by the way. <laughs> but she's kind of all about Chinese medicine, um, energy. And I went to go and see her. And bearing in mind, I'd been to see a gynecologist and a GP at this point, and nobody had flagged that my low body fat percentage was probably, you know, one of the reasons why my periods weren't happening. Um, went to go and see her. Within two minutes, she said, how much exercise are you doing? What's this? What's that? And then she went, you're too thin. She was like, your body is not giving you a period because because of that. You're doing too much exercise. You're too this, too that. You know, she said it in an incredibly compassionate way. Yeah, I mean, I'm course. making it sound really brutal, but no. like, you know, it was very compassionate and very nurturing and motherly in a sense. Um, but she basically just made me really understand that my pursuit of health being wrapped up in thinness was so warped in terms of mm. what I was actually doing to my body. What I was doing was in order to try and be the thinnest version of myself, which is what I thought I wanted and which is what I thought represented health in every sense, was actually the complete opposite. And in order for me to get to what I wanted to be and also to have the future that I wanted, to have children, you know, to be able to have um, full and luscious hair, to yeah. be able to have energy to get out of bed in the morning, I needed to eat more and mm. I needed to stop doing so much exercise. And it took a long time. You know, it wasn't just a simple kind of quick fix of being able to re, re um, relearn, I guess, what health meant to me. But um, yeah. It was a it was a process that I had to go through, and that was kind of the catalyst for me. So that was probably about, God, anything from maybe five, six years ago now, and then from there, having to really build back up to where I am now. And I'm still learning. You know, any woman knows that we are constantly challenged by insecurities with our bodies. So I don't true. speak to anyone who doesn't have the day where they feel a little bit, you know, kind of bloated or uncomfortable in themselves, where they look in the mirror and they don't like what they see. You know, I I still have those days. But I'm far better at challenging that internal narrative and far better at knowing that everything I'm doing for my body now is truly my version of health that is a sustainable and manageable one. I relate to you so much because last year I felt my body was under significant stress, but mine weirdly was the opposite. I didn't stop having my period for six months, like a continuous one. So the doctors were really worried. They were like, this is weird. But I lost eight kgs, oh which, you know, I don't weigh that much. I'm not going to say how much I weigh because people don't want to, I don't want people to think like whatever it is, but like compare themselves. But I lost eight kgs and it was a significant amount for me considering mm. that my body weight in the, in the beginning shouldn't have been gone below like two mm. kgs. And so it was a really hard time for me. And this year, one of the things that I really wanted to do was really focus on my health, really focus on going back to the gym. Last year, because I was balancing my job and doing this, I just stopped going to the gym. Mm. And when I stopped going to the gym, I eat like a normal person. Mm. So instead of having three portions, I would have one portion. Mm. But my body, like, generally needs a lot of food. Some mm. people, you know, like you just said, it's very personalized. Some people don't need that much food. Some people need to eat a lot. And this year was the year where I was like, I'm going to go to the gym. I need to give myself at least half an hour where I'm doing something for myself. And I'm making sure that I'm eating well. And one of the ways I'm eating really well is by taking Form. So Form are kindly sponsoring this video. But they are an incredible company. And you know, because you've tried their powders. I love Form. But they are just so amazing. And the thing is, is it's vegan. It's plant-based. And it's got 30 grams of protein in it. So for someone like me, who's like always on the run, always traveling... I have a flask as well. I quickly put that in there and I can take it with me. And it's actually a really good shaker. I normally 
normally don't really like shakers. I have to use a blender. But their one, weirdly, I don't know if you've tried it, is really, really good. Or I don't know if I just haven't tried other blenders like before. But I really love Form. It makes sure that I get all my vitamins, my nutrients. And I know they've put so much effort and work into every single ingredient. And the fact that it's plant-based and has so much protein in it is just amazing for me. And it comes in all these different flavors, which is amazing. I, I am a massive fan of Form. I have worked with them on and off for however many years you know I'm I, I now buy it as a like loving yeah. customer because I genuinely love it I think that um we've noticed a massive spike in the protein market in terms of what we have on offer particularly in the plant-based protein market and for me there's a lot of kind of filler stuff that can go in proteins that isn't necessarily that great for us mm. um i trust form 100 as a brand i know damien the owner really well yeah uh, i know that the amount of research that's gone into every single ingredient is extensive um and also like most importantly i think it tastes great i think it tastes unbelievable too i mean vanilla used to be my favorite but now they've got chocolate tiramisu banoffee and i just use it in like pancakes and like baking i'm actually going to try making a banana bread with it it's I, tried with pancakes and it tastes unbelievable i think that's the thing i think it's incredibly versatile in how you yeah. can use it but also like crucially and we we know that protein is a, an important building block of our diets but i mean you know you mentioned to me earlier that you're vegetarian exactly it can be difficult for people to hit their protein target really when hard. they're limiting their kind of animal based products that they're consuming maybe dairy as well so um having a plant-based protein that is high in protein and most importantly convenient for them to fit into their lifestyle yeah. is actually really beneficial we know that it's going to help with things like energy muscle repair you know all that sort of stuff so um i would definitely say good thing to carry in your bag good thing to have post-exercise yeah. we know that like you know we uh need to replenish our kind of protein post-workout so um yeah really important and, it, and it's a good one to go for for sure i just take one of those minis with me to the gym shake it up and have it after so like you said it's like it's very good but that's why i'm saying like at the moment it feels like there's an influx of so many different brands mm. so many different recipes how do you know what's actually good for you and what's not oof that's a good question um I think we have to define what we mean by good Mm. because um, there is no one size fits all when it comes to how we eat. For example, you are vegetarian, I am not. And those are our personal choices that we make. And neither is better or worse than the other. Mm. Um, No one food is good or bad for us in isolation for the most part. Okay. We are a you know a a, a makeup of what we eat consistently rather than what we eat once Mm. so I think that there's a lot of rhetoric at the moment around oh this is bad for us this is this this is that and it's like yes okay there are going to be foods that are more nutrient dense than others and there are going to be foods that I might limit in my diet because I know that they're going to be less beneficial to me than others Mm -hmm. Um, but for the most part I think that we have to really understand that context is key within our diet and that also maintaining a consistently you know kind of nutritious diet um with a few sprinklings of the things that you really enjoy yeah is really really important and I think that often what's fundamentally overlooked when it comes to when talking about our diet is nobody really talks about our relationship with food they don't and particularly for you know my audience that's a really really important building block of health your relationship with food how you're able to think about it during the day how you're able to kind of enjoy yourself and relax and um, consume foods that you may have once thought to be bad mm. you're able to have them in moderation and it's a you're able to like kind of foster that really healthy relationship with food when I think about clean eating Alice days it was so binary in terms of how I felt about foods and it was incredibly restricting and I cannot tell you how much of my daily energy was was taken up by 
thinking about food constantly. I can't have this. I can't have that. Where am I going to get food from that is kind of good to eat? And, um, you know, it was so time consuming and energy zapping. And I think that our relationship with food and the food that we eat have equal weight. And it's really important that, um, you know, in answer to your question about how we know who to trust, qualifications matter, but also whether someone's tone of voice speaks to you. You know, if someone is giving out that information, are they being incredibly dogmatic in their approach? Are they saying, this is bad, you should never eat this? You know, that for me is a red flag personally I'm done um, with all those videos I mean I don't know if you've seen these meme videos when it's like he's opening up a cereal box and he's just about to eat it and it's like cereal is bad for you and then he's just about to like eat a watermelon it's like fruit is bad for you then he's just about to drink water and someone's like don't drink too much water and he just like throws everything up in the air because it's it's ridiculous and I saw someone the other day saying which is healthier this uh, Nutella on toast or avocado on toast and the avocado on toast had more calories. What's better for you, the Snickers bar or the granola bar? Snickers bar had less calories. And so what we're seeing in that is a confusion because these so-called junk foods have less calories, but they're actually so bad for us in terms of additives, in terms of preservatives, in terms of all of these toxic things that we're now found, finding out can cause us cancer. Yeah, I think that um, it, you can't you can't necessarily say that um, and I think you have to be really careful in terms of we cannot conflate eating like one food to causing cancer. I think that's that's really difficult. So um, I just sort of highlight that. But what I would say is a lot of that stuff exists in a vacuum. We live in a world where most people um, do not have access to the abundance of foods that you and I exactly. might have. We have an incredibly high amount of poverty in this country. When we look at where that poverty exists, the access to those people in poverty in terms of the food that they have access to is so much poorer than what you or I might have so in true. the areas where we might live. Um, so we cannot say, you know, in this kind of very binary way that that um, you should never eat this, you know, it, you know the, the, the kind of um, example that you used about cereal, you know, that might be all that someone can afford. So and also it's a very like it's a very affordable food. So if you if you can give your ch your child Weetabix in the morning to say that it's so bad for you, it's so contradictory. If I can only give my child grapes at lunch as their fruit snack or a banana or yeah. an apple, but I can't give them, you know, I don't know, an apple with peanut butter to balance out the protein, mm. then that's all I can do. Do you know what I mean? It's overbearing. Yeah, I think like in a nutshell, it's completely mixed messaging yeah it's completely um kind of class centric and it's it basically negates the fact that there is such a wider issue when it comes to food in this country and the messaging that we have around mm -hmm. it and it's far more complex than simply educating people on what's good and what's bad because as we know those labels don't necessarily work and again like i said no one food in isolation is good or bad it's about the context in which we eat it so I think it's I think it's so difficult to say, you know, how do you know what to trust? I think that we have to have far more autonomy, I guess, in, in what we choose to eat and and try and avoid anyone that makes you feel as though, you know, you're a bad person or, you, you know, you've done something awful by eating a food that might not necessarily be as nutritious as another. Um, and again, going back to that point, also fundamentally grounding that kind of whole thing should be our relationship with food and how we feel about what the food that we eat and how it makes us feel more importantly rather than solely going off things like calories which we know can be quite an empty sure. um, empty number when it comes to actually looking at the nutritious value of food agree and i think there's some some people that look down upon you like i love diet coke 
and I love it. I please Diet Coke sponsor this podcast. I love it so much. <laughs> Imagine but, oh, the dream. But I love Diet Coke. I love Coke Zero. And yeah. people are like, I thought you were really healthy. And I'm like, I am really healthy. Or I like to eat junk food. Like I have to eat a packet of crisps or something sweet every day. When I'm 40 and my metabolism isn't so great, maybe I won't. Yeah. But at the moment, I really enjoy it and I don't feel guilty for it. And maybe one of those reasons is because I have a fast metabolism and so I'm not super conscious. But let me not be super conscious. You don't have to point out every time I'm eating like a packet of crisps and saying, is that really good for you? It's good for my mental health, is my answer. But also, like, we all have choices, right? And we all have our vices. Exactly. I eat a salad, like, every single day. For either lunch or dinner, I have a salad. And so then if I have a packet of crisps or I have a chocolate bar or I have a biscuit or I have something, I don't really care. For me, it's about the balance. I love salad, though. It's not like I eat it out of a punishment. If I could have a maid that cooked for me every single day, my life would honestly be like I had like a protein pancake in the morning and I would have a green juice and I would have a salad for lunch and I swear to you I'd have a salad for dinner or I'd have grilled vegetables. Just sometimes I don't want to make a, like a grilled vegetable salad and I can't be bothered to put it together. So I'll eat like, you know, sometimes I'll have a frozen pizza because it's quick and it's easy. But I think that there is so much judgment on other people for what they eat and it's so frustrating. Well, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And we live in a society where we love to judge other people, yeah. don't we? We love to tell other people that they're doing things wrong. Just I just think that, this. yeah, I just think that when it comes to um, food, just focus on you, focus yeah. on what you enjoy, focus on what makes you feel good. Start to ask yourself those questions, you know, yeah. do I enjoy what I eat? And actually, you know, one of the things that I do actually believe in is rather than looking at what you can take away from your diet, focus on what you can add so in. True. So even if you're someone who enjoys a takeaway, it's like, yeah. could you add like a few more vegetables into that order so that we have a little bit more fiber in that, you know, meal? Or could you add some fruit to your breakfast? Even if you want sure. to continue having that cereal, could you add some berries in so that you've got again a little bit of kind of like um you know fiber and 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 fruit going in there so I do think that um a nice way to look at it is to say what can I add in that's going to bring some benefit to my diet rather than I can't have this I can't have that I shouldn't have this which is even the narrative in itself and the mindset is really kind of like restrictive focus on what you can put in and that's quite a nice way to look at it it's the same with positivity and like negativity right like focus what you can add to your life stop thinking about everything that's been taken away so I I love that point but I also just wanted to add to that everyone's body is different Mm. and people need to understand that like you could have two coffees and be like oh my god I'm so sensitive to caffeine I can drink five coffees in a day and be perfectly fine I will never get the jitters from coffee (laughs) I need to test how many coffees I can have you are superhuman (laughs) no but like I spoke to someone yesterday and she was like I can't have matcha because it gives me I'm very sensitive to caffeine but I can't have more than one coffee in a week because I get the jitters and I was thinking I've had four today like it's only 12 o'clock it's a bit crazy (laughs) but I drink a lot of coffee but I love it I love the feeling of it when I watch someone on TV like you know when you watch to the police people on police people police on TV and you know they're drinking coffee from like that horrible mug yeah. I love it I'm like wow that motivates me so much to get up in the morning and make a disgusting coffee that's I'm the very most weird. random example I've ever you, but it's so true like yesterday I was I watching Manifest and like you know in the hospital they have those like cups yeah. of coffee and I thought wow I can't wait to wake up in the morning and have a coffee oh. I woke up late and missed my alarm but we'll forget about that Shit, but anyway so funny. my point is is that everyone's body is different and so you know you, you can't judge and say like oh that person can eat this much or oh that person person you know has to always eat salad because all that person has to always eat fish or whatever but but, because that's what they need but also fundamentally before even any of that just don't judge what anyone else is eating. Yeah, who cares? Why is it any of your, your business? Own plate. Yeah, why is it any of your business? You spoke earlier to me off camera about this concept of 
judgment and how hard it is when you're growing a platform and you have been for a really long time. And I think especially for you, because you've grown it from such a young age, and like I mentioned, people have grown up with you, people must have so much to say around how you've grown, how you've changed, how you've evolved, how you've gone through different friends, you know, you're not getting engaged or married, you're engaged. Everyone must have an opinion on something. How do you cope with that? I'm yeah. finding it hard. It's a difficult part of yours, my job. Um, it is probably the more negative side of my career that I really struggle with. I am a deeply sensitive person. I'm a Pisces and like I'm just emotional. Same. And so my skin is not that thick when it comes to being able to take criticism. And I've always been fairly open about that because I think some people just think that we are invincible yeah. and that because you put yourself online, you should be able to take the criticism that comes with it. Yeah. I mean, I literally had that yesterday where a girl was like, you've chosen to have a public platform, so you need to deal with the criticism that comes with it and it was like but no I don't mm. you know um I actually think that there's a really definitive line that I draw when it comes to social media and that is that I don't believe that I'm immune to criticism it's just that if you're going to criticize something that I've said can you do it in a constructive way Love so if you take that. issue with something that I've said I'm all for open lines of communication tell me or challenge me that I've said something differently or worded something wrong or you know got something wrong you know better than most. Like I, I, I am happy to hold my hands up as I just said earlier and say that I've got something wrong. Mm -hmm. I'm not. I'm not kind of. I'm. I'm human and fallible, and I'm accepting of that. But what I won't accept is when people are just plain rude. Yeah. And there's a lot of people that are just plain rude. And there's a way of communicating with someone. You know, even I've had it where there's been something that's been said that I find challenging, and I, I really have to question in myself. I'm like, do I say something, or is it just better? if I just let that exist, like what am I going to gain from saying anything to that person? Like, am I going to feel better in myself? No, probably mm. not. Am I probably gonna feel worse? Yes, maybe. Um, so it's definitely the more challenging aspect of, of, you know, what we do. And I think that, you know, I was reading recently and I was explaining to you earlier about this kind of tall poppy syndrome. Mm. We love to build people up. We love to be part of raising someone in their success. We love the journey. We love the struggle. But what we don't love is that when someone kind of tips over in that balance of then getting too successful, having too much money, having too much success, being too confident in themselves or too celebrating of the fact that they've, they've had such success. And so we then want to cut them down. Yeah. And you see it across the board in celebrity culture, in social media. And it's one thing that absolutely and fundamentally affects women more than men. Really? You see it far less with men. Far less. Because for, for whatever reason, we struggle with the concept of the successful woman. You we know? do. We struggle with the concept of it. And I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm totally happy to be criticised on this if people want to. But I, I will not take back that statement because I fundamentally believe that we still struggle with this idea that a woman can have it all. Mm. And I think that um, I've noticed that as my success has grown, um, some people have been in, like I would say 99% of my audience have been amazing and wonderful in supporting that journey yeah but there are others for whom it, I guess you know you get to that point where they think well hang on a second she's a bit too much now or she's got a bit too full of herself or she's a bit too successful I don't like her anymore there's oh, she just annoys me there's this about her and you know what Shivani I have felt this in myself about other people and I've had to learn 
truly that it's part of society that we do this to people you know you've grown up with it in celebrity culture when we think about people that you know we love the journey and then as soon as they get there it's like oh she's too this she's too that well they make a mistake Mm. this is the problem that this is something i really struggle with if you ask any human on the planet, if I uploaded a video right now and said we should never strive to be perfect and perfectionism is, you know, the killer of us all, 150% of people, actually, I lie, every single person would agree and say you shouldn't be perfect, right? Mm. I can guarantee that everyone who'd watch the video would say, I agree, we should never strive for perfectionism. There is no such thing as perfectionism. Then why do we expect it? Why is it when I come on my platform and yes, I don't say something in the correct way. Yes, I haven't worded something right. Okay, I may have said something without thinking. Why is it then you're saying to me that I'm disgusting? I'm the world's worst person. I am the the nastiest person you've ever met. Why is it that you're so quick to maybe cancel me? Because I've made a mistake. Mm. And like you just said with the whole celebrity culture, we can push someone up, we can push someone up, we can push someone up, and then they've pissed us off because they've said something we don't agree with because they have made a mistake. Or they're not perfect. And they're not this idyllic, amazing human being that we carve them out to be. We've got to stop this on social media. None of us who have built a platform have ever said that we are the gods. We know what I'm saying. I'm telling you right now on my podcast, there is multiple things that I say that are wrong. There are times when I'm rude. There are times like every single one of you that I have a bad thought, that someone's irritated me and I thought for God's sake and I wanted to say something to them. I'm not perfect. But just because I speak on this podcast and I talk about deep, meaningful things does not make me a saint. I'm not a saint, but people treat you like one. And then when you make a mistake and you don't say something in the most articulately beautiful perfectly strung out sentence that could upset somebody and I'm so sorry if I've upset someone but I'm not perfect so I I, I can't prevent that but th- the thing that I really find challenging with it is that how do we ever expect people to learn if they never make mistakes in life every lesson that I have learned is because I've got something wrong and I've learned how to do it differently or say it differently or word exactly. it differently and we won't accept for whatever reason that people in the public eye are human are so fallible true. All of us, all of us make mistakes. People in glass houses should not throw stones. I don't think that anyone sat at home who sent me a trolling message has never done something wrong in their life. No human being. for whatever reason, because I have opened myself up to this platform, I should therefore be accepting of the fact that people can tell me whatever they want about me. And again, I'll go back to my point. If I have said something wrong, Tell me constructively. I love that. Message me in a, in, in a calm and com- a communicative way, yep. in an engaging way. And I genuinely, and I've had it so many times where someone's messaged me. I'll give you an example. Recently, it was around the word fat and that I had been called fat. And I had reshared the message and I had had a message from a lovely woman who had just said to you, I just want to challenge you on the way that you've perceived the word fat. And fat is just a descriptive word. It's got such negative connotations, but actually it just describes how someone looks and how their existence. And actually a lot of fat people are kind of reclaiming the word and sort of saying, don't give it the negative weight that it has. Right? Interesting. I'd never thought about it in that way because I'd never had to and that's okay. But I'd also really had to have my eyes opened by someone whose lived experience is that and say... I'd never thought of it from that perspective. I really appreciate you messaging me. She then sent me a brilliant article that I went away and read and I came back and I said, thank you so much for sending that to me. You really opened my eyes. I'm going to change the wording on that post. And we moved on. I love that. Brilliant, brilliant example of how I can learn 
that person can share their kind of, I guess, lived experience and, and we can both be better off for it. So true. But that is the minority in which that happens. Often 100%. it's just, you're an awful person. Why? Like, you know, yeah. I, I, I hate you. <laughs> Literally, they're just like you're the nastiest person in the whole yeah. world. I can't believe that you you say these things out loud. And I'm like, at home, like, I didn't mean it, I swear. Like, I, and the thing is with me is like, at first I start replying to every single comment. Like, I'm so sorry. Mm. I really didn't mean this. I didn't mean to. And you're right, actually. I had one person that directly messaged me. Mm. And I replied to her and I said, I'm so sorry. Like, this is what I meant. And she messaged back saying, thanks so much for explaining. The yeah. fact that you've taken the time out to explain it to me. And I understand that. And I understand that sometimes you get your wording wrong. And then even in the comments, I would reply back. And then people would be like, but why didn't you say that then? Because that makes sense. And I'm like, I made a mistake. Mm. Like, I, I didn't mean to say something. Like, how many times have you said something? You've just blurted it out, you know? These are really long conversations. And sometimes I don't remember the hook. And I don't remember the, the beginning line to say, but... You know, it's really difficult to please everyone online and, and you really made me feel so much better when you were like, you just can't reply to everyone. You know, you just can't. You're never going to convince everyone. You, and also, a lot of those people don't want to be convinced. Yeah. They want to have that perception of you that you are a terrible person because it makes so them feel true. better about themselves. If you come back and say, oh, this is what I meant and I'm really sorry and blah, blah, blah. You know, nine times out of ten, they don't care so because true. they've already made their judgment. That's how social media works. It's so instantaneous now. They'll see a video, you say something that they don't necessarily agree with. It's like, she's an awful person. So true. It's that quick and so don't waste any more of your energy mm -hmm. giving that to people who just won't be convinced otherwise I love that. give it to the people who care who yeah. come in a nice way but yeah don't give I it to, to, to people that don't no way whilst you're such a trailblazer oh. in the fitness <laughs> industry in the food industry and everybody knows you there's also a partnership that I really love that you're part of and you're an ambassador for women's aid you talk a lot about domestic violence and abuse that you went through mm. and I want to touch on that when, when did that start yeah I was really young when I went through my relationship and actually part of the work that I now do with Women's Aid which I'm so grateful for them to have me on board because they are just the most incredible charity really? is working with children and young people um the reason being that I was only 16 when I was in the relationship that I was in that was incredibly physically and emotionally abusive um and I think we forget that those first relationships are so pivotal in what we learn to be right and wrong in a relationship so true. and so part of my work with them now is really teaching you know what constitutes a healthy relationship what does a healthy relationship look like what are some of the red flags that young people should look out for when experiencing their first relationships whether that be jealousy gaslighting coercive control um you know kind of all of these things that we um know to be not necessarily a sign of abuse mm. but a possible thing to be conscious of and to look for those patterns so that if you find yourself in that situation you are so aware that that might be a red flag and that you might want to then extricate yourself from that relationship so yeah my situation was was really challenging you know when I look back at my life and think what what did I find hardest to go through in a way I'd say that is the the best and worst thing that happened to me and the reason being is that it was the worst of the worst but off the back of that the strength that I then had to carry on you know mm. it could have completely broken me and I look back at that time and think you know when I couldn't sleep at night and my mum had to literally sleep in my bed next to me because I had like horrendous panic attacks and flashbacks and you know it was like such a traumatic time um to look at myself now I'm just like I know mm. that I rebuilt myself from the yeah. bottom up and you know exercise was a huge part of that rebuilding even the Instagram community like being 
valued and being you know and I you know you asked me what was the reason that kept me going like yeah ego drove it because my confidence was entirely shredded when I went through that experience I believed that I was completely worthless I literally could not have been at a lower ebb and so to then just a few years later start this platform where people made me believe that I was valued Mm. and people made me believe that I had a place and I was, you know, a nice, kind person, completely rebuilt myself, you know. It really was fundamental in me becoming the person that I am today. So I think that... um, You know, my work with them is really important and I don't take it for granted that, you know, my role as an ambassador for that charity comes with talking about the difficult subject matter and being able to have those difficult conversations where you talk about abuse. Abuse is ugly. It's painful. It's life destroying. But if we don't have conversations about how it manifests and if we don't have people sharing their experiences, if they feel comfortable to, then how are we ever going to be able to reach all of those women who don't get help? You know, we know the stats. I think it's now one in five women in the UK will be in an abusive relationship at some point in their life. And you know that's that's someone in this in our you know in each of our friendship groups that's yeah. someone in all of our families you know for pretty much so it's it's happening everywhere and the thing with abuse is most of it will happen behind closed doors where nobody ever sees it so it's hidden and it's insidious and it means that um we have to keep talking about it keep reaching out to people and keep signposting i guess to the best places that you can send people so that when that person decides i think i need some help they know where to go for that there's so much shame attached to speaking up so much I don't want to uh, air my dirty laundry. I don't want to tell this person. I don't want to do that. How do we overcome that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Shame is such a huge part of of kind of abuse. And I would say, you know, one of the biggest things for me with that was that I was absolutely stunned into not telling anyone because of the shame that was attached to it, the stigma, Mm -hmm. the fear as well. You know, he used... um, blackmail and manipulation as a big part of the abuse that I experienced so it was um kind of blackmailing me against my family against my friends in what way well sort of saying you know like I'm I'll gonna do this. hurt your mom or do this or you know like no yeah, yeah. so like a, a big part of my um fear was was reality it was like well you know if I if I tell them any of this stuff oh then God. yeah so it was That's um so hard to deal with as a 16 year old girl yeah and I think um I don't, I, you know, I look back on that time and a lot of it is actually really blanked out in my mind because I think, you know, we know the effects of trauma on the brain and how it tends to, um, you know, have a very protective mechanism. So um, in therapy, I even recently, and actually the reason why I first went back to therapy was because years later, after coming out of that situation, I mean, after maybe like six or seven years I started to have like really vivid flashbacks of things that I'd totally forgotten about so for example like him sitting on the side of a railway bridge saying if you break up with me I'm going to kill myself you know like it was like deeply awful and I'm sorry trigger warning for that sort of stuff but um yeah like you know and waking up in the night with that in your head and being like oh Oh my God, I can't believe that happened to me. And so over time, these layers and layers of abuse have peeled back and I have had to work through them. Um, But I think that's what shame and stigma do to us, basically. In response to your question, yeah, they they make us retreat, hide, Mm -hmm. not want to share, not want to 
involve ourselves in society and what we have to remember as well which is the ultimate sign of abuse is that abusers tend to isolate their victim so they don't want them to have a support network they don't want them to have friends or be close to their family because in order for the abuse to happen they need to see that abuser as their only person that they can go to and what we have to also understand sorry I'm going off on one but it's really important to get Mm -hmm. this out is um abuse doesn't isn't always bad I think people think that in abusive relationships it's bad all the time oh my god it must be awful all the time actually in my experience and in lots of people's experiences that I have spoken to in the work that I've done with women's aid it is often like a complete emotional roller coaster yes things will be great and you think oh my god this is brilliant and they can kind of they they shower you with love they might Mm. get you gifts or whatever And then when it's bad, it's really, really bad. And because you're constantly manipulated and also gaslit into believing that the majority of the abuse is your fault. So a lot of abusers will say, it's because you did this. You made me do it. You pushed me to to behave that way. You made me jealous. So I did this. You know, a lot of victims of abuse don't even realise that they're victims of abuse because they're made to believe that it's their fault. So we have to remember that it's much more complex than just she's in an abusive relationship. Why doesn't she leave? We have to have total compassion with any victim and anyone who's listening or who might know someone in in, in a situation like this, we have to understand that it's not simply a case of just saying, just walk away. Because it is so much more complex than that. For sure. Dealing with a narcissist and dealing with someone who's gaslighting you all the time is really, really, really difficult. Mm -hmm. I've seen it happen in a lot of my friends' relationships. And confusing. Very confusing. Because you think, well, they're they're nice to me most of the time. Mm -hmm. And this is the difficult thing. A lot of the time now, people think we're too sensitive as a generation. So let's say if I know somebody who's being gaslighted all the time. I know someone who's constantly being thrown bad remarks at. And I say, that person's abusing you. They're going to say, oh, my God, you're so woke. And you're, you know, you're saying that they're abusing me. They're not abusing me. They're not physically harming me. They just sometimes have a bad temper or they're sometimes rude to me. You know, you hear that a lot of the time. Mm. It's kind of like similarly with extremism. Everyone thinks that the word is so extremist. Gaslighting is really difficult, though, because people don't see it as a form of abuse. They just see it as, well, they think it's my fault. They're very different things. And if I were to go back to 16-year-old, my 16-year-old self, one of the things that I definitely believed was that the emotional abuse was far worse than the physical abuse. Really? Because because it fundamentally undermines, like, your whole concept of, like, who you are, you know, and you basically question everything about yourself. So, for example, I know for, let's just say, for example, my boyfriend gaslit me and told me to F off and was really swearing at me or whatever and he was uh, let's just say emotionally abusing me Mm. but then he punched me in the face my parents would not think they would think he's got a bad temper and he's annoyed at me about something which is why he shouted at me if he punched me in the face that would be the end of it does that make sense Mm. if I said to my parents he he said this to me and he said that to me but then if I said to them oh he slapped me across the face they'd be like get out of there right now but if I said he shouted at me and he said that the only reason that he, I don't know, kissed another girl was because I irritated him. They might be a bit more empathetic. People still don't see what you're saying in terms, I agree with you, by the way, but people still don't see that emotional abuse as abuse. It's more like they are sometimes fiery. They have a bad temper. They're a little bit. I'm really glad you've said this because I think that you've said what a lot of people think but are actually a bit too scared to say. Agree. Which is really important. Um, We 
minimise abuse in this country. We do. We make people believe that they are, uh, you know, responsible for things being done to them. And we believe that people are a bit too weak to deal with, you know, um, their partner's rage, um, jealousy, whatever it is. Abuse is fundamentally wrong across the board, no matter which way it affects you. You do not have to be physically attacked in order for you to be a victim of abuse. We see financial abuse as being Mm -hmm. really high at the moment. We see emotional abuse as being incredibly complex and high. Physical abuse is unfortunately what we think to be domestic abuse yes but actually it is so much more nuanced and diverse in terms of how it can be experienced and we have to start saying it as it is it's so important that we get people to understand that gaslighting coercive control and you know I'm going to be totally honest here and sorry to trivialize this but we actually have Love Island to thank in some regards for a lot of this stuff being bought into the household so the word gaslighting wasn't even really heard of until it was brought up on Love Island and Women's Aid did a big education piece on what is gaslighting and actually off the back of that I think a lot of people really had their eyes open to the fact that they never knew that that was a form of abuse and just to explain really quickly what gaslighting is um say for example i shouted and screamed at you you were very upset but i would say the only reason why i behave that way is because you've made me believe that that, that you've made me sorry let me say that again it's okay just to explain what gaslighting is um say for example i shout and scream at you and you get very upset but i tell you but you're the reason why i've done this you've made me behave this way it's all of these things that you're doing that have caused me to do this to you but actually the way that i'm behaving is the problem that's gaslighting so Mm. let's say for example i've heard someone say this example that's why i want to raise Mm. it with you let's say you've eaten my lunch and then i've screamed at you okay and i've just gone berserk because you've eaten my lunch okay because i was really hungry and you ate my vegan sandwich why don't I have a right to get annoyed with you? Why is that gaslighting you? Because it is your fault you ate my lunch and that is the reason I'm annoyed. Is that gaslighting? Or is that me being annoyed? What's the difference? The fundamental difference is, um, unless there is obviously a reason why, you know, I, you said you ate my lunch. So yeah, I'd done something wrong to provoke you, but the, the response should be fairly measured. I mean, is eating your lunch the worst thing in the world? No, it's not. Depends on what day. If someone decides <laughs> to scream and shout at you as a result of doing that, you know, and I've explained why I might have said, oh, I didn't realise, I thought yeah. it was in the fridge and it was mine, whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> such a stupid really example. <laughs> um, if the response is measured and, and, and quote unquote, we don't, you know, what is normal, but, you know, comfortable for, for you know, you, you have a disagreement, but you kind of move on, fine. Right. The, the fundamental difference Differences. If I hadn't have eaten your lunch, but you told me that the reason you were annoyed was because oh. I had and I hadn't, and I'm telling you, but I didn't do that. That, that would and be also, I think difference. the other thing would be is if I was like, you're inherently selfish because you've done this, this, and this, and like you'd never think like you're digging into all these all these traits which don't need to be brought up. Does that make sense? Like you're you're taking it too far, like rostered and friends with a sandwich. Yeah, I would say. Look, to, to, to summarize, gaslighting is 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 consistently undermining and um, making someone believe that they are to blame for their partner's behaviour, basically. Um, I think that every situation of abuse is a case-by-case basis, and um, we can't be super kind of generalised in terms of how each situation looks. So it's sometimes hard to minimise it down into these kind of um, scenarios. But what I would say is, nine times out of ten, if you think that you're experiencing abuse... You probably, probably are. are. 
You know, it doesn't need you and I to give scenarios. If you're sat at home listening to this and you think my partner is a bit abusive, really degrading, quite Mm. abusive, you know, verbally, physically, however it manifests, you probably are right and you deserve help. And I think that's the important thing. You deserve to be helped, whether it's happened once, 10 times, 15 times, 100 times. So true. We often, and and I've been so guilty of this, we often see this as like a sliding spectrum of abuse. So at the one end, we have people that um, have experienced consistent domestic violence where they are physically abused over a prolonged period of time and maybe something really terrible happened. And we say, oh, but mine's not as bad as that. And then we have people who have experienced, you know, maybe violence a couple of times. Oh, but mine wasn't as bad as that. So what I'm saying is, is that we can't compare like for like because every situation deserves help. Yeah. And yes, there might be some situations that seem worse than others, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean that yours is any less valid and that yours doesn't deserve the help and support that you do deserve. So I think that's really important. The reason I gave that example is because I think a lot of people generalise terms now. So, you know, that's the gaslighting one. I've heard someone say, well, if it is your fault, then that person has a right to react. And it's, you're right, reacting in a normal way, Mm -hmm. not in like a psychotic way, you know? So I think it's really important to just highlight that for some people if they're a bit confused about terms. But, you know, this is a really difficult topic to speak about. And I think throughout this podcast, you've been so incredibly vulnerable about sharing, you know, starting your page and then your about your books and then now about this. I think it's going to have helped so many people. So thank you so much. You. I would love to do a part two with you. I, really I know. Do think, I feel like, like there's so much more we haven't covered. There's so much more, but it's like literally <laughs> been over an hour. And I'm like, there's so much more we could speak about. But thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. I'm so grateful I have to say thank you so much for having me as a guest I've loved it and yeah that hour has flown by so thank you thank you 